0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Daniel Christian Wall, who um, I've actually known for, it seems like maybe 10 years now, but, but we, do, we don't talk anywhere near often enough. Um, we first met up at Finhorn in, in Scotland, and he is now living in Majorca. Um, Daniel is uh, Head of Design Innovation for Guy Education. Um, He's also with the International Futures Forum, and um, working with a project of theirs called H3Uni, which is the University of the Third Horizon, and he can tell us a bit more about that in a few moments. Uh, He considers himself a network weaver and works um, kind of helicopters back and forth uh, between the grassroots and the international level, trying to connect up the dots more effectively. Um, And we're going to talk today well, about a number of things, but um, through a focus of planetary health, which is one of the areas he's been developing over the last several years. So welcome, Daniel.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: I'm delighted. We've been trying to, we've been trying to nail down a, a window to, to do this for a while. Um, do you want to give us a, a, a little, just a little further kind of detail on both Gaia education? Um, and I know you said you're, you're on parental leave right now. Um,
1: uh, Gaia, Gaia education is, is the education um, network that grew out of the global Village network um, in 2005 and um, has expanded since from its grassroots eco-village background into working a lot with the United Nations and with the, different constituencies. Um, they run an um, 125-hour eco-village design course and a 400-hour online course um, in design for sustainability that I wrote a lot of the curriculum for. And um, because it's of the close link to the United Nations, um, education also does a lot of education around the SDGs and um, I recently developed a set of flashcards that um, are all about engaging local communities in the um, SDGs in a practical way. Um, Very dynamic facilitation process that, that basically gets people having conversations around how do the SDGs matter to our community and what can we do to implement them in ways that are meaningful to us and that are in internationally collaborative and, and, and show sure solidarity with other communities. And so, yeah, that's, I, I love working with them. Guy Education has has um, graduates in 125 countries on all continents, bare Antarctica. And um, it's, it's one of the organizations that I feel, I feel I can have an enormous reach through because by writing curriculum for them and designing their courses, um, the global network then rolls out these programs to a lot of people that that I never meet, but that I feel um, I can plant some seeds and and hope that they're useful for them. And um, it's it's a pleasure to work with them. Yeah.
0: Um because, because our listenership is is a great range of backgrounds, um, including people who are quite professional and, and technical in, in terms of regenerative work, but also people who are just curious about it, um, let's define SDGs and, and why that's important.
1: The Sustainable Development Goals were launched by the United Nations, um, well, the process was launched at the Rio Plus 20 Sustainability Conference of the United Nations, where Guy Education had a delegation and We were there when they basically decided to transform what was called the Millennium Development Goals into a new set of goals called the um, Sustainable Development Goals. And then there was a consultatory process, the largest within um, the United Nations, um, that took a number of years. And in September 2015, they were launched with a non-binding agreement of 196 nations or something um, that signed up to them. And said we want to drive these 17 goals and our aim by 2030 is that we are a long way towards having implemented them across the world um, collaborating country between countries and, and and working very much also at the local level to get communities to um, implement them and in many ways they're a great way of bridging the sectors bridging private sector public sector and and uh, civil society Um, particularly at the level of community and and by regional conversations or city level conversations. But the UN, to my mind, has focused a bit too much on, on the 169 targets that are under them, which to some extent have maybe you could say some of them have been co-opted by the neoliberal lobbies and, and they're not as useful. Um, there's also a big issue with SDG number eight, which is still claiming that economic growth is the way to, um, quality of life and um, of course that needs qualifying. What kind of economic growth are we talking about? Certainly not the one that we're using right now in terms of measured in terms of GDP. Anyway, I'm I'm, I'm kind of going into too much detail but uh, if you don't know about the SDGs I think we we as civil society um, activists wanting to bring about a positive change can do some Aikido with these goals and use them to bring um, business and the local public um, sectors, so local government and regional government into a conversation. Because in many ways, what the permaculture movement, the eco-village movement, the regenerative agriculture movement are doing is implementing a number of these SDGs. um, um, And by highlighting that, we're opening a door. It's the thin end of a wedge where we can then find more funding and more support for our activities.
0: Great. And and if for listeners who, who want to know more about the SDGs and maybe aren't familiar with them, there will be a link uh, that we'll post there with this podcast. Um, do you want to give us a, a little bit of information on H3Uni?
1: Well, H3Uni is a project that that I'm currently very marginally involved in, but it's it's a lot of people that I would consider my mentors. Um, in 2009, I was invited into a international, they like to call themselves a clan, um, of of wise elders of humanity um pe- people that that have been consultants or, or academics or um work, working in a whole range of fields um that came together to look at what they call a conceptual emergency that that humanity is currently in and find solutions that navigate our species into um the future accepting that we're facing fundamental unpredictability and uncertainty and that we need to be um, including multiple ways of seeing and, and more systemic way of thinking in order to um, chart that path. And, um, and people like Tony Hodgson, Bill Sharp, the the author of the book, um, Three Horizons, A Patterning of Hope. And that's what gave name to the um, University of the Third Horizon. It's it's a way it, of the Three Horizon model is a pathways practice of thinking about the future from different perspectives, integrating those perspectives and getting more clarity in the presence, what we call future consciousness about how our actions today can either create a regenerative future or continue on the path of degeneration and, 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 and collapse. And so it's a, it's, it's a wonderful resource. If you look it up, I'll give you, I'll send you the link. Um, particularly for people who consult or, or, or guide multi-stakeholder processes, um, H3Uni has now put most of it on, online as, as open shareware for people to, to look at hexagon mapping, at, at um, lots of different techniques that, that can unlock complex situations and have people, help people move forward. So that's, I mean, that's one of
0: the things I've always appreciated about your very prolific writing um, and, and the conversations we've had over time is, is that you're, uh, you know, very much, well, you're adept, but you're also invested in a systems perspective on things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if there's a way forward for the planet and for humanity, it, you know, it has to involve embracing and uh, really starting to work as a conscious part of a larger system. Um, And so that's, uh, as I I say, you know, your work has been, I I think, really helpful for folks to be able to start to perceive it, you know, system is complex. Mm-hmm. And you you kind of can come in from a you know a multiplicity of angles, and depending on on your entry point, it might look somewhat different. But the elements are still all there, and they're still all interconnected, and they have a dyna- you know a dynamic uh, which is ongoing. So it, regardless of the of the angle you might look at that from, you're still essentially dealing with the same um, the same factors. And the, increasingly the conversations I've been having with people, you know, more, more kind of on the, on the interpersonal and the, and the community level here in Barcelona, but also, um, you know, with contacts I work with in North America, back in Ireland, etc., cetera, um, has been this, this frustration and, and f- mixed with fear um, where people just don't feel they understand enough about what is happening to find a meaningful point for their own interaction with it you know and so it comes out it's like well what can we do you know how do we do that so this um you know the planetary health um work you've been doing i think it starts to articulate a lot of that in terms of regeneration um and so that'll be really interesting for us to to unpick that a bit now um there is um a link again i'll put for for this uh overview that, that you've put together on planetary health and regeneration and because it's it's rich um and we're not going to be able to do more than kind of touch on some elements in that um as in this conversation but uh, listeners um very encourage to, to go there on your own afterwards and um, really take the time to go through it there's a lot a, quite a few linked articles there all of which are are very helpful for your understanding and and to inspire uh, you know some direct personal engagement with it with these topics um, I remember and this, you know, coming back to kind of community and, and, and individual engagement, I remember when, when um, I was working uh, with Cultivate Center and the, the Eco Village folks in Ireland um, back in the, it must have been around 2003, 2004, um, and we were going to start adding um, climate change. To the, to the list of topics we presented during our annual learning festivals. And at that time, um, I was already saying, I kind of think the question isn't so much, what do we need to do to respond to climate change? But it's much more about like, who do we need to be? You know, what kind of people do we need to become? What kind of a society do we need to have in order to be able to effectively respond to this? So that kind of kicks it back up to that meta level, and I, and I think it nicely um, it nicely connects the individual and the grassroots with the sort of more institutional and policy uh, economy and, and and those sorts of things. But I I do believe that um, you know we, we know we know how to we know whether it's overall or in in you know great detail. Um, in specific areas of activity that need attention, we kind of know what needs to, needs to be done. We have the expertise. Um, we have the resources. They're concentrated in some of the wrong hands right now, um, but but overall the resources are there. One thing we do not have is time. So there is an urgency to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do believe that. Uh, the missing ingredient, or the or the weak ingredient, because it's not missing entirely, but I think I think the weak ingredient in our, in our ability to respond to this is that personal, social, cultural, to a certain extent, and political motivation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that <clears throat> wow there was a lot in there yeah <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> it's dense packed <laughs>
1: so, so uh, you, you started with systems thinking and, in, in a way that's the thread um to some extent uh, to understand that it's so important to weave multiple perspectives because we're facing like if we take a kind of complexity lens to this then this complex dynamic system is fundamentally unpredictable and uncontrollable, because it has a multiple, like my mentor, Brian Goodwin, at Schumacher College, when I did the Masters in Holistic Science, did a kind of slightly oversimplification of defining complex dynamic systems as any system that has more than three interacting variables, which basically are most systems. It's a cell in your body, an organ. um, Your body is a complex dynamic system. It's actually a walking ecosystem with with a microbiome living in it and on it. and communities are, so are bioregions, so are ecosystems, so is our planet. And on top of it, each system I just named, the whole lens of just looking at that particular scale and saying, here's a cell, here's a body, here's a community, is a, is a way of seeing. It's creating an artificial boundary with language of saying, now we're looking at a community scale, now we're looking at a bioregion scale. In, as a matter of fact, when we talk about everything is interconnected, we're admitting that all those scales are in one big flux. It's, it's all connected. Um, we first met at Bioneers uh, um, in, uh, when I brought Bioneers to Findhorn and their strapline is it's all connected, it's all relatives, it's all um, alive. Uh, and, and actually that hits a, a number of uh, important nails on this meta-level shift that you, you said rightly that we, we have so much in place but ultimately, it's that meta-level shift from separation to interbeing, from a narrative shift that, that says there's a world out there that we can objectively measure and control and put into statistical boxes, and therefore we can predict and control it, which is the, the, the agenda that reductionist science has pushed from, for, for many years, and it generated a lot of wonderful technology, and it's a valid way of seeing and doing things, but it isn't the only one if once we acknowledge that it every science is a reduction to a particular focus and a particular way of looking at the world and studying it and as physics understood over 100 years ago what we observe is is critically dependent on our method of questioning and of seeing the world then we understand that if we shift this bigger perspective and move back like bringing back the knowledge that we in in the obsession with progress, we dismissed millennial wisdom of indigenous cultures as primitive knowledge. And this is what's biting us in the back now. We, yeah. we forgot to understand that, like we, we threw out the baby with the bathwater. We thought, oh, our technology is so fancy. So everything else we do is more evolved, better progress. And we leave all that behind. Instead of keeping these gems that for... Thousands of years of our species history have taught us how to live in place, how to honor our relationship with the web or the community of life that we critically depend upon, how to be a regenerative participant in our bioregions. As When we were still hunter-gatherers, we didn't exhaust a food patch in such a way that the next time we came around, there wasn't any food anymore. We knew how to leave things behind so the next season would just give us enough when we came past again. And of course, we're, we're in a very different culture now. But these, this wisdom of connection is is critical. And, and, so, and all of that also links what you said, what can people, individuals do? Um, well, one of the biggest changes is to understand it's not the question of what can I do. You are doing something every single day of your life, every hour. You're making choices about where to put your attention, what world to live for like either you continue the story bitching around in a cafe saying it's all going to hell and it's all the big corporates and let's blame them and what can we do we're a little cog in the machine we can't do anything but you're actually creating that world in that moment the minute you take your own agency and say no i can activate a different story i can build a community project in a transition town project i can engage with people in a learning community if there's so much more to learn about this complexity then then you're building a different world. So it's not about what can I do, it's about what am I doing? Because we all, through our actions and inactions, through how we think, how we speak, and what we do in the world, what we pay attention to. That's like May East, who's the CEO of Guy Education, has once told me this wonderful definition of activism. It's when I get up in the morning, after my morning meditation, I ask myself the question, what do I want to activate today? What do I want to give? The power of my attention.
0: That's beautiful.
1: It's it's really it changes, yeah. in, in, in a profound way. Uh-huh. And um yeah. So 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 this whole spinning around to planetary health. How does this connect? Many years ago, in two thousand and six, I published a ridiculously large PhD thesis, seven hundred and fifty pages, on design for human and planetary health, with the academic subtitle. A holistic integral approach to complexity and sustainability. And this was basically me working, building on what I learned at Schumacher College and the Masters in Holistic Science, and, and saying, okay, if that's the new worldview that's emerging from complexity science, from Gaia theory, from Goethean science, from lots of different streams, how do we implement this worldview? How do we, like, um, again, Brian Goodwin said, the, the big shift is from trying to predict and control and manipulate. Aiming for appropriate participation,
0: and that comes back again to the indigenous. Yeah, you know, um, I I I don't know if I don't know if we ever talked about this before, but I spent about twelve years of, of my life just completely emerged in uh, in support for indigenous struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, I I ran an organization called the Arctic to Amazonia Alliance based in the the US, and this is what I did. Um, And then part of that work had to do with trying to make, you know, conceptual bridges between those realities and trying to explain to, at the time, um, environmental NGOs uh, that seemed to think human rights weren't something they needed to think about. Um, how they, how, so I was explaining to them how they needed to take up the cause of indigenous land rights um, and, and, you know, cultural uh, protection um, as part of their environmental agenda. And to a, to a certain extent that, that, was, that was successful. So that was back in the late 1980s and into the 90s. Um, but one of the things I used to say was that, you know, from that kind of selfish perspective, because unfortunately, even today, but much more so, t- 20 years ago, it was the doorway into um, awareness for people in an overdeveloped country like the United States. Things needed to be put in terms of their own self interest, right? So there wasn't this, I think, I think things have grown, you know? I think awareness has grown in that time. And, and we see a lot more support for issues that are going on for different communities, different peoples, different situations, simply because we perceive that this is appropriate. But at that time, we needed to constantly be giving them the, the kind of the incentive to do that. So I would say, look, indigenous, in, indigenous culture actually holds the template for what it means to be human.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and that's why it's so critical for so-called first world to be in an active and contemporary conversation with indigenous societies.
1: I, I think it's it's hugely important. I, I feel that there is a is a more and more bridges are being built. And and um, one of the knee-jerk responses by some people would be, "Ah, oh, it's this going back to some idealized golden past," and that's not really what it's about. Um, I really like the framing um, that. Oxford scholar called Owen Barfield, who is very influential in the anthroposophical movement, he um, wrote a little book called Saving Appearances, um, and in that he he speaks of of a sort of arc that is the arc of um, three phases of of our relationship to context, um, like who are we in the wider context of of the living planet and life as a planetary process. Um, that indigenous cultures have this initial original participation, which is basically everything is alive, everything is sentient, everything is meaningful. If I walk through the forest and the, uh, the sunbeam hits a dewdrop and I see that little diamond sparkle, that is communicating something to me. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm linked into that reality, I can draw meaning from that an insight from that the same as when the crowd come from what, which direction does the crow call come? It it can give insight. Um, That initial participation mystique um, disappeared in the enlightenment and with the whole program of, of, of us um, becoming more conscious of our, that, that, that sensed, separation of looking at nature and making sen- sense of it that, that happened as we moved into this age of separation, the, the, the time where we developed science and technology. That gave us a lot. And the Enlightenment also helped us a lot to develop a more planetary awareness than, than, than maybe um, the original place-based cultures had. And now it's about final participation, putting the two of them together, see, uh, acknowledging the value of multiple ways of seeing and, and these, these streams of our evolutionary history and bringing together, um, understanding that, re- that there's a difference between knowledge and capability and wisdom. And as you rightly said, there's deep wisdom in these indigenous cultures that we need to make relevant, it is deeply relevant to our survival, but we need to make it relevant to modern society in, in relanguaging it in the right way as well.
0: And, and, and I think it's also important to, to acknowledge that that's completely accessible because it's our own history as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, we, we all come from a place and a time when this was part of our daily experience.
1: So, so much about regeneration that, that when, you, when you look at the different approaches of, of regenerative development, this this kind of questioning into the story of place, both the cultural, like what I like to call the, the biocultural uniqueness of place. Um, what does this place want? What is its history? What is our history as being part of this place as, as, as human beings in the web of life, in the community of life of this place? And, and it, it, yeah, it's
0: yeah. interesting. Interesting that, that you bring that up now. Uh, it just I was speaking with Kevin Bayouk yesterday from Lyft Economy, and part of that conversation, we went into this concept of bioregionalism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and so it's very much a, a, a concept that's alive right now and needs to be.
1: What what I what I sense is that bioregionalism. I've, I've been a fan of bioregionalism ever since the late '90s when I first sort of found out about it and read Planet Drum papers and, and, and Peter Berg and, and Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes Love
1: Gary, love Gary <laughs> Snyder poetry to this day and and also um, reading the wonderful book by Ian McHarg um, uh, Designed with Nature and, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and what I've realized is that, that, that it's been like on the one hand I've been, I spent a long time being focused on the community scale of how to implement sustainability and, and was active in the eco-village movement and, and also in the early transition town movement, um, and what I realized living at Finthorn Ecovillage for four years is that really the juice was reaching out to the wider community from that ecovillages and building bridges. So um, my friend Jonathan Dawson once called it the yogurt culture, like the the, the ecovillage type of holistic integration of the social economic worldview and and, um, ecological dimensions of life was inoculating the, the wider culture. And turning the, the milk into yogurt. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I, I kind of I like like that image. But but what, what I realized is that implementing structures, systems, um, whether it's healthcare, education, food systems, energy systems, it's very difficult to do it just at the community scale. The synergies really start to stack up at the bioregional scale. Yes. The, 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 the concept of not entire self-sufficiency, but highly increased self-reliance on local resources based on local production for local consumption at the bioregional scale, focused mainly on biomaterials. All of that is critical. And it's coming back in different ways. It it needs to be filtered more into the conversation around circular economies that the critical question is, at what scale do we cycle and what do we cycle? but, but I think that there's a, there's a convergence that the bioregional scale, and because you mentioned bioregionalism, that's where the focus of attention is shifting towards. And and earlier when you mentioned planetary health, what I found amazing is that about six weeks ago, I got a call from a professor from the University of Sydney, Australia, saying he was in Europe for two conferences, and in between he had some time, could he come to Mallorca and have a conversation with me? And i felt flattered. And, and particularly when I found out that he was the world's first professor for planetary health. And he runs the planetary health platform at the University of Sydney. And he's a co-author of the um, um, Rockefeller Foundation and the Lancet Commission on Planetary Health that um, brought people together from all over the world for two years. And they wrote a report that they published in 2017. And in conversation with this guy called Anthony Kakon. He also started talking about bioregion. He also started talking about islands. I live on an island, Mallorca, being great case studies for bioregional development. So to see that, A, with him, my past came back to me because suddenly in conversation admitted that he he loved my early academic work um, and my PhD and the papers I spun off in 2006, 2007, and that had influenced his more holistic understanding of planetary health and also what what he was very keen on having conversations about is how do we bridge the regeneration agenda, the ecosystem restoration agenda and the planetary health agenda because they're actually one agenda. Um, Ecosystems restoration and regeneration are the operational side of how to improve planetary health. And planetary health is the umbrella understanding that our individual health, our community health, our ecosystems health and our planetary health are fundamentally interlinked. And we cannot be a healthy individual in a healthy community if the ecosystem is going to ruin or if the the life support system of the biosphere is shutting down, which is basically what's happening right now with runaway climate change.
0: So to bring this down to... um... Maybe a few examples of common experience, because again, I'm, I'm, I, you yeah. know, our, our, we ourselves are kind of helicoptering, you know, in, in up to a, a more technical language and then, and then, you know, back down to earth, sort of, sort of like an everyday experience for people. Some examples, I think, of a bioregionally based um, Experience might be, for instance, community-supported agriculture at the, at the more local scale within your bioregion. You know, and so they, for for those who, uh, people who aren't even familiar with that expression, this is basically the concept that um, you know the community of consumers uh, is directly engaged with the growers of the food that they eat, and it's all kept quite local. Um, and then it might move up to something like, I mean. C- c- classically bioregionalism tends to be organized around watersheds and so then the health of that watershed now what's the watershed you know that's where you get your water from but it's also you know every if you think about every drop of rain that lands within that watershed is going to run down in the you know to the to a common reservoir whether that be a river or a lake or whatever but it's it's the catchment area um so that that the health of that directly affects the health of the people and the communities that live there. Uh, the, the health of the enterprises in many cases as well, so that's the economic health, but also the activities within that are always impacting on the health of, of that water system and the water system which supports the uh, the natural the forests and grasslands, which, which supports the wildlife, the biodiversity there. So, so there we get, we get these these kind of interlinks Um, and the ability, I think, in kind of everyday activity, uh, even if one doesn't see themselves as um, either adept, understanding, or even interested in something like policy, I think most people can wrap their heads around uh, sort of like decisions we make and how that impacts. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the beautiful thing, I think, that doesn't get enough attention in terms of developing a more, uh, or returning to, I should say, returning to a more bioregional sense of place and, and therefore of identity, is it offers us the opportunity to fall in love with where we live? You know, and, and when I, when I mentioned earlier about this question, I hold of like, what kind of people do we need to become in order to kind of navigate through this uh, conceptual emergency, as you said earlier? Um, I do believe that one of the things we have to do is we need to fall in love with the planet again.
1: Absolutely. I, I wouldn't, that's, that's the beautiful addition, as you rightly said, like that's where bioregionalism becomes really real. Um, like the, the, the in my book, Designing Regenerative Cultures, um, when I started to write it, I asked myself the question, um, what, what can I write here that will not be obsolete in, in three years, five years, or 10 years time? And, and also began to reflect on the fact that so often in the history of humanity, um, our, our solutions that we found with the best of intentions end up being the problems of the next generation, because the complex dynamic sh- system shifts, and and so that maybe questions are more important. And and coming back to the bioregionalism, and the li- link to loving the place is as you begin to ask questions about your place: where does my water come from? What is my watershed? What are the native species here? What used to be here ten thousand years ago before there was that many of us? Um, What materials, like historically, the the link between the place and the people, what did people grow here 100, 200, 500 years ago? Um, What were the main industries in the past when things were still more local and each bioregion had its unique gift to international trade, which was a lot uh, smaller then, but was still producing stuff that they were good at and that the local bioregion and the local biomaterials were offering? And so, and, and and as we do that, we deepen into when do the first migrating birds arrive, and when do they leave again? What what um, what are the songs of the birds? And and suddenly, that whole web that we are, that our our physical bodies actually evolved in communion with, as as David A- um, Abram in his wonderful book *The of the Centuries, describes so beautifully, that that, that we are that our entire way of being has been in conviviality with the wider world, with the hooting owl, with the, with the howling wolf. And, and we've shut ourselves off from, from, from the, this connection. And as we fall in love with, with the place again, we fall in love with that wider community. And I think that's ultimately what, what is the, the core shift in order to find the will and the motivation to keep doing this work. Um, of regeneration and then we then like you mentioned food and by the uh, um, community supported agriculture as an example Um, another mentor and friend of mine Helen Norberg Hodge from the International Society for Ecology and Culture was really pioneering in this highlighting that the food system is a wonderful way to get mainstream people interested in these questions that like Isaac was in the forefront of, of having educational programs that helped people to reconnect with their food shed, their watershed. Where was their food coming from? Eating more local, not just eating more organic, but eating more local. This, 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 this thing that sometimes if you trust your local farmer, that's more important than whether he's got an organic s- stamp from some big international organization. Um, if you know that farmer is a guardian of the landscape and of the biodiversity and farms in a sensible way, then you probably don't need the stamp. And yeah, uh, same with, with paying attention to where our water comes from, where our biomaterials come from, where our energy comes from, what is the potential to generate renewables in our bioregion. It's the entry point into regeneration on all levels.
0: Yeah, a couple of pings there. Um, indicators. You know, the indicators suddenly become meaningful and accessible when you start to local, sort of localize your perception in that way, you know? It's like, how do I know when it's going in the right direction?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, are, what are the things, and, you know, there was a time when we could smell it in the air. There was a time when, 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 when hiking, you might know which water course you were getting your drink from because of the difference in the taste of that water. Yeah, that's when water, mm-hmm you know, and it seems like a fictitious time now, you know, when, when, when water was safe to drink out of a stream.
1: I, I, remember, this, I remember this when I lived um, in, in the late 90s, I tried to set up an, an eco-village in southern Spain, um, still kind of long-haired hippie in a VW van, um, saying, oh, I just get all my friends together and we buy a derelict farm, and then we create an environmental education center and eco-village here. It, I learned a lot in that time, the place never materialized fully, but um, I spent a lot of time looking for land and doing kind of permaculture site designs in my head from different ruins that we would fi- find in an area called the Alpujara, which is south of the Sierra Nevada. And um, driving through these villages, I noticed that when you speak to the locals in that region and you mention any, like let's say you're in Orchiva, which is one of the town, little towns, and then you mention another village high up in the mountains, whether it's Trevilis or Ujija or the, you name it. Um, the first thing the old people will say, mm, the water tastes good, man. Like they, 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 uh-huh. They, they, uh-huh. they have an immediate association between the taste of water and the different places in the Sierra Nevada where the snow melt comes down. Uh-huh. And yeah. the, the famous water Caron, that is sold all over, over Spain comes from the Alpujarra. Uh-huh. Um, so so yeah, it's it, it's exactly what you're saying, um,
0: and th- and that and that actually ties very nicely back into that that concept that you know we all come from a more indigenous beginning, yeah. and that it's accessible to us. You know, it's not a linear question; it's a question of re- remembering. You know, exactly. li- literally,
1: you could say that regenerative development at the local and bioregional scale is a process of re-indigenization. And it doesn't matter whether you were born in that place or not. If you make that commitment, if you start that journey of living the questions together of what is this place that we're finding ourselves in and how do we live in a regenerative, how, how do we redesign the human presence on earth in this place so our impact becomes regenerative rather than degenerative?
0: Yeah. And what does that place ask of us? Exactly. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindedmedia.com. That's M I N D A N D M E D I A.com. And now back to designers of paradise and host Eric van Lennon.
1: Hey, welcome back to designers of paradise. It's because that's the, that's the other big dimension. Like the, um, Learning, like the biomimicry movement is wonderful and has done an amazing job in, in highlighting the ingenuity of nature and 3.8 billion years of evolution tell, be, being able to tell us a lot about how to do things better. But in the language and the framing, I always want to highlight that when you frame something as learning from nature, you linguistically still put nature out there as if it is an yes. other. Yes. And I, I, I like that um, what like a lot of the, the, the elders of the, uh, of the regenerative movement like Bill Reed and Van and Haggard and Pamela Mang and Carol Samford um, in a lot of the, the graphs and the stuff that they've put out early on, they speak about designing as nature. Exactly, exactly. Um, because we need to make that reconciliatory step of understanding that that nature culture divide is entirely mind made. It's, it's, it's our way of telling the story. We, we are biological beings. We're actually walking ecosystems, as I said earlier. There, there are more cells in you and on you that have non-human DNA than there are cells that have human DNA. You are a walking ecosystem and so am I. And both of these ecosystems are uniquely di- diverse. And again, linked to planetary health. The diversity in our microbiome affects how the epigenetics are switched on and switched off how our cells develop, how we develop and is unique to us. And so,
0: and, and, and were we sitting in the same room instead of being on a, you know, a a, a phone call are, are, our unique biomes would also be interacting.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: You know, there would be resonance going on and call and response happening and all sorts of things that maybe would be put, you know, beneath or, or too too rarefied for our kind of everyday level of perception, but it doesn't mean they're not happening.
1: Exactly. And the story of interbeing, that wonderful word um, that, that Thich Nhat Hanh coined um, is... That, it has so much. Like the, we now have a science of interbeing. We you can use natural science of like the the, the the all the research into the microbiome and all the research in, in, in ecology to show how interbeing is the way that that like like even looking at life in terms of individuals and in terms of species is just a lens of looking at it. Ultimately, it's one planetary process. And, and again, that's where biomimicry got it right with this wonderful strapline: line. What does life do? It creates conditions conducive to life. Exactly. And if we ask ourselves that question, does it create conditions conducive to life, which means human life and the wider living process of life as a planetary process, then, then, then we're beginning to learn how to chart a course into a future that will be, more flourishing, more thriving, more regenerative, whatever name we want to give it.
0: I want to go back to um, actually this, this, this article that you published, Planetary Health and Regeneration. Um, and yeah, that's, we, we don't have that much l- longer in this particular call. There's no reason we can't have a number of calls in the future. Um, but there, you open up that, that article by saying there's plenty of evidence that we have in the past acted as enriching, nurturing, and regenerative influences on ecosystems we inhabited. Um, you know, and I, I, I like the way you said that. It's, it's, it's really clear. Um, I, I often think that, you know, we have these kind of, and, and I wouldn't be the first one, I think, you know, this kind of dual potential philosophy probably goes back as long as we can find writing that we can interpret. Um, but it's that sense that, 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 you know, we have the capacity to be gardeners, right, as a species. We also have the capacity to be bloodthirsty rapists. Mm-hmm. I think most people would agree that we've kind of tested the second one to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> um, and then maybe it's time for us to re-embrace that capacity to be gardeners.
1: Absolutely. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's again, it's like yes, Dartmouth, Dartmouth in, in the UK was deforested by early Neolithic people. Uh, so it's it's not that we always had a good um, regenerative impact on nature. But the the, the, the example that I give in, in the article is is the Terra Preta in in the Amazon, and how um, it, it is now clear that basically the indigenous population in parts of the Amazon, gardened or, or, or forest-gardened that ecosystem into existence. The diversity of plants, what type of plants, where they are, even the, 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 the soil series that, that has um, carbon bero, buried, charcoal buried into it, bio, biochar, um, and, and bits of clay to improve the capacity of the soil to regenerate, regenerate itself. All of that was hu- human influence.
0: Yeah, the... the, the, the unexpected percentage of economic plants in what was perceived by Europeans and until recently by you know, contemporary scientists as, as um, natural, yeah. you know, as, as just part of the ecosystem. And, and it turns out that all of these have you know, probably millennia mm. of, of cultural value, whether they're edible or medicinal or used for craft work or building or whatever, that that concentration you know rep- represents a um, uh, an interbeing of of human culture and and the natural force system
1: it, it's so much is about like with again coming back to our food like we used to feed on such a diversity of plants 14,000 15,000 different plants that were on humanity's culinary diverse plate and now 90% or 95% of our diet is comes from eight Plant species and six or seven animal species. And mostly
0: industrially produced.
1: Yeah, and mostly industrially produced in in a in a horrific way that that at some point we will look at that way of 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 growing even that perverse word livestock, um of growing livestock in that industrial way as similar to concentration camps and and a brutality that we just will not understand that, that our species have not grown out of yet. Um unthinkable. Unthinkable. Yeah, and it's, it's 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 as like now. Now we look at what at some point women that it, it didn't vote or or black people weren't allowed to vote, eh? and and we look at that as barbaric in a similar way that all the good people are doing um, work on nature's rights, like Polly Higgins and and the, the the movement of earth jurisprudence that grew out of Thomas Berry's work, um, uh, Cormac uh, um all the all these people are doing important work so we can evolve to the pl- place where we can understand that nature has rights, rivers have rights, like we, we were members in the community of life and not masters of it. And once we once we include that in our decision-making, we won't um, make wiser decisions. But I, I just realized, because I really wanted to come back to this article briefly. Um, the article that you mentioned a couple of times now is basically two weeks ago, I sat down and I just thought, I really want to map the glass half full, all the amazing initiatives globally that, that are doing good work and that are saying, no, it's not too late, because the, the public conversation around climate change over this summer has suddenly shifted from, well, we're not quite sure whether it exists and all that, yeah, there's still being in the media, to, oh, seems like it's existed for a long time and it's too late now. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, and, we, yeah, we, we jump from denial to panic.
1: Yeah, and, and well, maybe that's a wake up. Um, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations a couple of days ago said we've got a year and a half to avoid runaway climate change. I think he's wrong. I think we are in the middle of runaway climate change and um, the methane is bubbling up. The the, the the forests are releasing, tropical forests are carbon um, sources rather than carbon sinks. The oceans are carbon sources rather than carbon sinks. Clear signals that we've hit all the runaway processes that it's now a self-reinforcing process that will get worse very rapidly, but that, but there is a window of opportunity, and that's where he's right, to avoid what I would call cataclysmic climate change, which is when the whole global system tips to the point where supporting higher life forms will not be an option anymore for so many millennia on this planet that it spells the end of lots of species and the end of our species. And and that's a real and present danger now. And in in order not to resign and say, what, how am I going to live in that kind of end time world with my little daughter, who is now 15, 14 months old, I, I put in one article lots of organizations and lots of links. and I, I call it a confluence, a stream that is growing and growing that will... Bring that tsunami of change that we need in time, hopefully and and I see it it 's all things regenerative, like the, the the great flourishing of people working in regenerative business, regenerative enterprise, regenerative agriculture, regenerative development, um, regenerative cities, uh, regenerative economics, um, all buying and understanding this when they use the word regenerative, the reintegration of Culture into nature in ways that are healing the system and making the system more productive, bioproductive in, in the future, and more diverse and more resilient at different scales in the future. But then there's also this massive push now in terms of ecosystems restoration wonderful work that the Common Land Foundation is doing and the ecosystems restoration camps are trying to do with, with, with in, involving more people in this concept of how do we regenerate and restore entire landscapes, um, working with local farmers and local landowners um, to, to bring back the rivers, to bring back the forests, to bring back soil fertility, to, to bring carbon back home into standing forest biomaterial, soil, all of that. And, and the UN is about to call, um, most likely if, if, if it gets through a, a UN decade, for ecosystems restoration. And, and that could give us a lot of wind in the sails of all, all these people working in the regenerative field, which is, is still s- sort of rising. And then on yeah. top of it-
0: So it's like-, it's like the SDGs in a sense, you know, that, that they, when an institution that is global like the United Nations, yeah. whatever you may feel as an individual about their, their effectiveness um, you yeah. know, as, as an institution- <laughs>
1: You could have another- Whole, whole, yeah, th-
0: but there's no denying that they have a, they have a visibility impact, you know, and, and, and that when they put their stamp of approval on something, that a lot uh, is possible in terms of uh, shifting resources, shifting funding, shifting yeah. policy, etc.
1: Yeah, and, that, and, and I feel like I, I keep hearing Fritz Schumacher um, in, in my head um, saying we may not be able to raise the winds but when the winds come but we can set the sails so that when the winds come we're ready and in a way there's a bit of a <laughs> uh, thing in there because the winds are coming we're getting massive storms because of climate change and it's, the winds of change are blowing so hard that we don't really want that much change that quickly but at the same time there is a kind of all these people that have been working on this for so long you and I included, yeah. Um, there's a sense of suddenly there's wind in our sails. There is something shifting, um, there, and and we also like because I often hear this from people who've been in the m- movement of trying to bring about this wider change, um, that this shift, what what Robert Gilman called the transition from the era of empires to the planetary era, and and with it that that rite of passage in hum- humanity that that we are now having to grow up and become a mature species that. That lives within the community of life and doesn't think life's just there for us to exploit and 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 rape and pillage, and um, in this in this process, I think like in this article that that you mentioned, I I mapped lots of different streams from the eco-village movement to transition towns to all the different genres to the people working in, in restoration and, and the long history of of the ecosystem's restoration and biodiversity protection movement and how we can marry all these agendas under the umbrella of planetary health as this scale-linking emergent property that that links our individual cellular organ body health to our community, to our family, to our ecosystem, our bioregion and the planet. And that's
0: why it's I think that's why it's so such an important contribution you've made by by kind of uh, aggregating and and helping to interpret that, Uh, you know, the complexity of what's going on out there, because there's still a lot of work to be done um, in terms of linking up elements. Yeah. within that, because, because of the way we go about stuff in our culture, you know, we still tend to do it in either isolation or separation, et cetera.
1: And there was um, a lovely, just briefly, there was a lo- lovely story there because I put this article out on a Wednesday and on the Thursday I get an email from somebody um, who I'd, I'd never been in touch with before um, called Jose Alcocher, who is, who's was a Mexican who now lives in my hometown in Munich and has a, a from from his website looks like a very well-organized little consultancy that works in the space of innovation, technology, and, and sustainability. Um, and he, he co-founded a little company called Vortex 7 that, that is a online mapping software to help people think more holistically and interconnected about clusters of information. <laughs> and so it, what, what he did is he, he took my article, which had lots of links and hyperlinks in it, and just used that article um, which according to medium is a 12-minute read and put it into, a, into one of his ma- maps. And we, we could tweak the map. But what that did is, and it's now at the bottom of the article, um, the link to this, is it created, because the article naturally, because of writing, is, is a linear story that takes you through a sequence of, and this is important, and this is important, and this links in, and this links in. But what he's done is to make it non-linear And put it into a way that that anybody can find their entry point say oh i'm really interested in let's say biomimicry and they click on biomimicry and then they see that link to a couple of videos and a couple of resources and a a couple of other things and then they click to the next and so it, it allows because we are all taking different perspectives on this complexity we all have different entry points of our pet story of our main interest but what this map does is to show that wow when all these things start flowing together, then we actually, as you earlier said, we, we do have a lot. We know what we could do. We don't know whether, whether we're going to succeed. We don't know exactly what the first system is going to throw at us, um, the, the process, the, di- the dynamics are going to throw at us. But we do know that certain activities, planting more forests, regenerating soils, cleaning up waterways, Shifting towards biomaterials rather than fossil materials. Shifting towards renewable energy sources rather than fossil energy sources. Stopping carbon emissions as quickly as possible and trying to draw down as much carbon as possible as, as, possible, as quickly as possible. But doing so through biosequestration and then processes that take carbon even from the biological carbon cycle into the into the geological carbon cycle because it, it doesn't stop. Adjust biosequestration that wouldn't work in the long yeah. run on the climate system. All, all of these things, we, we kind of know that that's how we would have a slim chance of avoiding cataclysmic climate change and stabilizing the runaway, reversing the runaway, getting to the point of actually in three or four decades having a drastically stabilized climate system with let's say somewhere approaching 350 parts per million and by the end of this century we could feasibly get to 280 parts per million um, of CO2 in the atmosphere again and which is the the pre-industrial level that we had and with that we would most likely have a much more stable climate but it's also important to understand that this is we shouldn't fall into carbon myopia it's it's really important to keep an eye on the carbon story but we need to think of this systemically. It's, it is about healing the, the whole system and not just, oh, how much carbon can we eat?
0: Yeah, well, the beautiful thing about healing is, is that there's so many opportunities for benefit from that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, there's, a, there's a little story. Um, that I think most people aren't aware of, and it just, it just shows the potential. It's a different era, you know, but it shows the potential of, of what can be done with, with um, landscape-scale transformation and restoration. There was, a, there was a period of time shortly after the age of colonization and pillage started, um, you know, the, with the European expansion, um, which was called the Little Ice Age. Mm-hmm. And there was, ai don't remember the amount of time that this was, but there was, a, it was like a, a U-turn in, in, in the climate, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, which because of more, more land mass and less ocean, it was, it was more quickly felt. But um, there was a period of time where, you know, the, it's even recorded in some of the, the Dutch masters' paintings. Mm-hmm. From, from that area where you see all these winter scenes and people skating on the canals which previously didn't freeze that that well and, and afterwards didn't freeze that well. Um, and it turned out that what happened and it had a dark root to it, what, what happened was when the um, Spanish explorers started to uh, basically decimate the Amazon basin and through the diseases they spread um, annihilated something like 90 percent of the people who were living in that region we're talking millions and millions of indigenous people the forest very quickly regrew Mm -hmm. and the drawdown from just the amazon basin reforesting itself in the absence of human intervention Mm -hmm. was enough to pull sufficient carbon back out of the atmosphere that it brought on the little ice age Mm -hmm. right so that's just a I think it's a really interesting example of, of, of what can happen if we actually focus ourselves on, um, you know, taking care of, we have to take care of both the sources and the sinks, you know, yeah. for that CO2. But then, but then the other thing about that is, you know, every single aspect of corrective and healing action is an opportunity for meaningful engagement. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to create economic returns. I mean, this is people doing work. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, there's nothing to be, to be afraid of. Um, in, in kind of wrapping up this call, cause uh, I, I know we both were, we're kind of at the end of our hour, um, or maybe a little over there. I, I would really recommend for, for, for listeners to go to this article. I'll link it again. Um, or again, I will link it mm-hmm. underneath the podcast. And as you go through that, just pay attention to the sorts of things you gravitate towards naturally, Mm -hmm. the things that enthuse and excite you and delve into that because you will be welcome there in whatever element that is, um, your contribution will be welcome. Um, as one more person who is, who is you know, passionate or can, can build passion around whatever that topic is. And remember what May East told Daniel, which is after you finish your morning kind of orientation, ask yourself, where am I gonna put my energy today? And um, you know, pick from that list. You, you, could, you could do a lot worse than that.
1: <laughs> wonderful, that was a wonderful way of ending. Um been a really lovely conversation. Maybe we'll have another chance some other time. Um, oh, we'll have, we'll have
0: to do that, you know? I mean, if we start now, maybe in six months, we'll find the time again.
1: And, um, and give um, Rob Hopkins my, my love when you talk to him on Monday. Because I will know.
0: do, I will definitely do.
1: Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Daniel, for, for your time and your brilliance and, and, and your heart.
1: One, one, one last thing that, that, that I wanted to maybe briefly say, because. Talking to somebody like you, who's possibly even started ten years earlier than me on on this journey, um, we we've we've seen a lot of change. Like you were talking about this, I didn't know about this organization that we worked with with Arctic and Amazon Exchange um, in in the 80s already. Um, it's sometimes it looks like it's painfully slow, but I I actually think that when we understand that fundamental transitions in the human presence on earth are in timescales that are different than our little lifetime timescales, the the, the 60, 70, 100 years that we might be um, blessed with in in one lifetime. We we judge whether something is slow or fast in relation to our lifetime. It's normal. It's a human thing. And that's why we desperately get frustrated that nothing is shifting. But what I love about um, Robert Gilman's framing of this this era of time and the move from like the initial was the tribal era and then then there was the era of empires and now we're moving into the planetary era and and on this graphic that he's got he begins the beginning of the the planetary era phasing in at the Renaissance, which many people could say it got worse since then and we that's when we really created the the, the exploiter technologies that really fucked things up badly <laughs> but in many ways to see that we also had the conversation that were people like Goethe who understood a whole participatory way of being in nature from a scientific point of view and an artistic point of view. This This is a longer shift. This is a shift that takes three, four, five, six, seven generations. And I think we are in this unique generation that we're actually at the final death throes of the era of empires and by necessity, if we want to have a future, it will be in the planetary era, and and I think things are changing very rapidly at the moment. And um, I think we still have a chance, <laughs> and let's let's work at it with active hope.
0: Yeah, absolutely, active hope. That's the thing. <laughs> okay, thanks, Emil, Lots and of- uh, we'll be yeah. in contact.
1: Yeah. Bye bye.
0: Okay, bye now. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag r-a-s-a dot a-g. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's g-r-e-e-n underscore h-e-a-r-t, Greenheart. We'll
1: see you next week.